need to address loneliness. It is literally killing us. But more and more, the research is telling us that there are real health consequences of loneliness. It results in a 29% increased risk of heart diseases. That's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes every day. The problem is that more and more people are lonely today. In fact, it's almost one in three. We must connect to people. We must engage with people. Time and time and time and time again, it's community that saves us. Hi, my name is Rachel Abel and I'm a community specialist and leadership teacher, also known as Head of Making Friends. Recently though, I've been thinking about what that title really means in the current COVID-19 crisis. We're experiencing a stark reminder that we are all part of one global community. It's clear that in order to keep ourselves safe, we need to look after one another. Responsible leadership that focuses on the voices and the needs of the community has never been so vital. Through my research at UNSW, I've had the privilege of speaking with a number of community experts about how they lead and encourage their communities through listening, creating a safe environment, acting with integrity and treating everyone with respect. To help us think through some of our current leadership concerns, I thought I'd share some extracts from those conversations with you. The first of the three key experts that you're about to hear from is Gopinath Parayil. Gopi is a social entrepreneur, storyteller, responsible tourism advocate and an innovative community facilitator. He has extensive experience working with communities responding to a need, whether it's palliative care or natural disasters. Explain to me how Blue Yonder helps the local community. So what's the connection other than, you know, you're building awareness. So people, people come and they visit that area and they see the local businesses and the families and the potters and the weavers that are working and, and the connection with the river. How, how do you manage to have that impact in, in the community? So uh, one of the key observations we had when we set up the business was there's a limit uh, on which how you can invest on the whole idea of romance, you know. Uh, like, you know, yeah, you can talk about very passionately about the river, but by end of the day, what is very important is to convince people that they can actually make a living of this romance. So we, whatever we design, of course, there was a lot of passion in it, but we always ensured that the people that we invited to work with us were handsomely paid, that they could make a living of it. They could make a living of this cough. And that's what we, so, so for example, we were looking at communities who were directly involved with the river. One most obvious um, community, they, they were the sand smugglers, you know, can I go and talk to a sand smuggler and tell him, see, you are hurting the environment, so please stop? Why should he or she stop it? Because it's bringing them good money. So unless and until I can show them an alternative, you know, if not a supplementary source of income, they are not going to listen to me. So we started the small um, country boat cruises through the river, along the river, uh, river banks, where uh, we, they, they ferry my travelers. 
So we never managed to match what they were earning earlier. But along with the money, we gave them dignity. That worked a lot. They had a lot of respect and they were thrilled about taking travelers. So their horizon, it was also expanding. They were meeting more people. So, so it's not always about money. You know, it's about self-respect. It's about the respect you get from others. It's about the dignity in which you treat people. Then we started looking at communities who were very talented, very creative, but because of the class system, because of the caste system, because of uh, prevailing um, you know, perceptions of other communities about what they do, there were a lot of people who would never get a performance space, um, you know, people who will not be celebrated because of their background. So we started working with such people, uh, telling that, you know, in this modern world, uh, we need to th think differently. It's the art has to be in the front, and and then again, that's so easy to talk about. But how do you implement it? You know. So again, we started. We created something, for example, called a musical trail. So in the musical trail, what happens is people from one particular community, uh, they set up a small school. You know, one room school. And they were struggling to sustain it financially, you know. So we started bringing in the travelers. And instead of just looking at how they practice or how they train, we created a script around it. How certain kind of music or school of thoughts came to the banks of this river from different, different locations and how it all merged into creating the kind of music that we have. So this also made the community think a lot. This also made a typical trip in a place like Kerala more exciting and you know um, uh, it was more experiential for the traveler they are not seeing a stage performance they are within the community they are interacting with them they are playing on like you know 10 12 different musical instruments and they are sharing so there's a lot of exchange happening it sounds wonderful it sounds like an amazing experience for everybody involved yeah you should come over <laughs> I want to absolutely. I'm definitely going to take you up on that. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so initiatives like that. So music, boat trips. Then we started documenting the folk art forms in partnership with a lo lot of people. And anything we did, one thing we focused was again going back to the whole palliative care experience or co-creating. You know, we knew that we are too small and very limited when it comes to imagination. But that's where crowdsourcing helps. Collaboration helps a lot, you know, because you can have 10,000 ideas, you talk to 1,000 people rather than just banging your head. Um, I, I love the concept of co-creation. Well, this is all about providing agency to the communities to take decisions on their own. Like I am not advising or telling anyone what to do. I'm just listening and observing what is going on and... Instead of a solution provider, I or my organizations that I'm involved in has always been a facilitator. We are just a platform where people can bounce ideas and we co-create things. So I, you know, that whole collaboration and uh, co-creation is a key foundation for community development. GOP demonstrates two key elements of responsible leadership in community. The first is to stop thinking of yourself as a leader and start thinking of yourself as a co-creator. 
Secondly, Gopi is describing responsible leadership practice, which values cultivating relationships that help us solve problems and achieve outcomes which benefit all of us. Human capital management expert Dr. Alan Burton-Jones describes responsible leadership as one that emphasises effectiveness, ethical behaviour and respect for stakeholders and practices which are economically, socially and environmentally sustainable. Sustainable development expert Ernesto Soroli advises that those who wish to be effective community leaders should also see themselves not as an authority but as a servant to the local passion and the local people. Soroli proposes that if we want to help, the first thing we have to do is listen. And he learned this the hard way. Here he is on the TED stage explaining what can go wrong when we lead without listening. We Italians uh, decided to teach Zambian people how to grow food. So we arrived there with Italian seeds in southern Zambia in this absolutely magnificent valley uh, going down to the Zambezi River. And we taught the local people how to grow Italian tomatoes and zucchini. And, and of course, the local people had absolutely no interest in doing that. So we paid them to come and work. And sometimes they would show up. <laughs> And we were amazed that the local people in such fertile valley would not have any agriculture. And, uh, but instead of asking them how come they were not growing anything, we simply said, thank God we're here. <laughs> Just in the nick of time to save the Zambian people from starvation. In this talk, Soroli goes on to describe how his team just couldn't understand why the local community weren't growing their food. But they soon learned why. I'll let Soroli tell you what happened. When the tomatoes were nice and ripe and red, overnight, some 200 hippos came out of the, from the river and they ate everything. <laughs> and we said to the Zambians, my God, the hippos! And then Zambia said, yes, that's why we have no agriculture here. <laughs> why didn't you tell us? You never asked. Soroli's story perfectly sums up how useless our efforts can be when we see ourselves as leaders instead of collaborators. Responsible leadership is about being a co-creator, facilitator and networker, more than an authority. A responsible leadership approach ensures that everyone has a say and understands relationships to be the foundation of sustainable communities. You'll now hear from Maz Farrelly, aka Maz Speaks. Maz is a former and some would say recovering reality TV producer, turned speaker, author and CEO whisperer. Maz has worked on some of the biggest shows in what we know is a multi-million dollar industry, which of course aims to entertain, but also holds many important lessons about community and communication. If you're a boss and you've created a really good community and people feel safe, mm. they can come to you and tell you that everything isn't okay. Yeah. In TV, in reality TV, you want people in the room that are saying, this is dull, it's mm. not going to work. Mm. This is dull, it's not going to work. Because I tell you what, I would rather it happened in the room than when we go on air and everyone says, this is dull, that didn't work. I want yep. a community of people who feel safe enough to sit with me and say, I completely 
disagree. And you're giving them the mechanism as well. Like you're 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 yeah, enabling them to safe. tell you what they think. You're part of a community, mm. so you feel safe there. Mm. Melby, I love. Uh, and I remember saying to Melby one day, you walk into this huge audition and there are 2,000 people here and they completely disagree with you. <laughs> yeah. And you'll say, I know you're 14, but you can't sing. Mm. And they go, boo, this is terrible. Now, she feels part of that community. We're all in it together. Mm. And she'll turn around and go, shut up. <laughs> and they love her and they'll start yeah. laughing and they'll applaud her. And you She's often go, right as well. We're in you it know. together. Yes. Mm. And she'd say, who told you you could sing? And they go, my mum did. And you're going to go, there's an alarm. And you go, go home and tell your mum, you're probably brilliant at tennis, but you're no singer. And she said, now, here's the thing. My kid really wants to be a singer. She can't sing. And I'm really honest with her. And it's great because she can disagree. That honesty seems to be a real theme with you, the the being honest and authentic. If you're a boss or you're a lecturer or you're a leader in any way and you are honest and sincere, but we would try very hard when we made mistakes to be really honest about it. Mm. And the press loved us for it. And I think the public loved us. We go, right, we tried that and it didn't work. Even tiniest little bit at all. It was an absolute catastrophe. And I'm terribly sorry about that. And people like it. Yeah. Or you could say, oh, you know, it did work. Yeah, it was quite good. Because you think people look smart. Audiences are very, very smart. Audiences yeah. know when you're lying. And communities know people when you're lying. lying. Yeah. And people in offices mm. know when their boss is lying. They go, mm. no, everything is absolutely marvellous. You go, they go, no, it isn't. And when you are honest with people, they join you and you create a community and it's a place where you can be honest and you can say, you know, we are the number three show at the moment. Mm. We need to get up to number one and we need to make some big changes here. And are we all in it together? Brilliant. Let's do it. Creeping up to number two. Congratulations. We're at number two. We need to get to number one. How are we going to do it? What's your suggestion? What's working? What's not working? Great. Let's change it. Mm. And everyone feels comfortable enough to say it out loud. And suddenly you're the number one show. Because I think for me, that's one of the key takeaways for me is that that working towards the common goal, but also the other main takeaway is the honesty, that conversation, the dialogue. If you can be completely honest with people you can then get people working towards a common goal together. Yes. If they feel safe with you and you create, you know, families argue mm. because they feel really safe. Mm. You know, you can't say, you're a nightmare, mum. Your kids feel safe saying that to you. Yeah. They wouldn't. Mine regularly feel safe saying that to me. Yeah. Yes, I was a yeah. nightmare as a child. <laughs> Still am. But I think, you know, in a community at work or at uni, You'll only get better if you listen to the people that are telling you what's wrong. And you can only do that if you create an environment where those people feel safe and they feel listened to and they feel cared for. One of the things that I would say to people all the time on the shows that I make is, we're making a TV show, but the number one thing is these people feel safe and cared for. Mm. And then we make the show. And when Mm. they feel safe and cared for, they'll feel comfortable and they will be themselves. If you don't feel safe and cared for, you can't be yourself because you're always looking over your shoulder thinking, is it okay? Are we all right? Yep. And feeling safe in your community is such an integral part of it's feeling your job. part. And say, yeah. It's yeah. your job to make yeah. everyone feel safe. Yeah. It's, your, it's not an added extra to your job. It's actually your job. So in everybody's position description, we should be having safety, working towards a common emotional goal, honesty, safety. emotional yeah. safety, yep, yep, and community building. As Maz has said... People need to feel safe if they are to speak up. 
Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, Amy Edmondson, explains that when we feel confident that we will not be rejected, punished or embarrassed for speaking up, we speak up more freely. In 2012, Google embarked on a project called Aristotle, a mission to understand what made teams great. It turns out the number one factor which makes or breaks a successful team is the feeling of a safe space. Google researchers identified that when people felt safe, they were able to admit mistakes, show empathy, engage in difficult conversations, and share their honest opinions. So, when Maz says that everyone's honest input makes a more successful show, she's echoing the findings of Project Aristotle and the great philosopher himself who said that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Our next community expert is Erica Hammonds, who is an Associate Minister at St Barnabas Anglican Church, known locally as Barney's. Erica is in charge of several ministry teams and pastoral care initiatives and plays a key role in supporting young adults, women and marginalised communities in the church. Erica has thought very deeply about what it means to be worthy of trust and to have integrity as a leader. It's interesting that, you know, some of the words that you're using, there's a lot of research that points to that social connectedness yeah. and the relationships being so important yeah. to people having that sense of belonging to their yeah. community. Yeah. But also you mentioned the word trust as well. Mm. Um, and some of the research definitely points to trust being absolutely key, that people need to have that trust in the community that they feel part of to really feel that sense of belonging. Is that something that you kind of actively work to build that sense of trust? Mm, I don't know if I'd say we actively seek to build it. I think we actively seek to be worthy of it. Mm. Um, like I'd, I wouldn't want us to think of trust building as like a PR campaign for the church because in a way that sort of feels like it's more oriented towards us. But I think if we're yeah. worthy of trust, that's a different thing. Um, I think what we notice is like people – there are still some sections of society for whom like church is a positive thing and it does mm. come with a certain element of just like it's a given. I know what this entity is and if they're offering me support, I don't feel like too – it doesn't feel too problematic to yeah. engage with that. Yeah. Um, but I think very much so the majority of society has very good reasons why they don't trust mm. churches and institutions. Mm. Um but they know lots of Christians and they trust them kind of on an individual level. Yeah. Um, and so part of I feel like what we end up seeing is that people um, are kind of happy to engage with individual Christians but maybe not the whole church. And they don't – they see a kind of a fairly stark distinction between those two different things. I like you. Yeah, that's Don't like the church. Yeah. Um, you know, most of my friends are like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had one friend who said to me, there are only two Christians I like, you and Tim Winton. <laughs> and like, that's it. Um, yeah. I'm like, that's I – mean, I'm really interested in this kind of concept of, of being worthy of trust because yeah. I think that's really interesting that you're yeah. kind of seeing that as not – not something that that you want to in a false kind of way earn that trust um and I would imagine there'd be people who would find that a really useful um concept to think about as well when they're building community are there mm. things that you think people can do or are there things that you do to kind of earn that trust and to show people that you're worthy of that trust Oh, that's a deep question, isn't it? It is a bit deep, isn't it? We got straight in there. <laughs> yeah, go in there, yeah. yeah. Um, can I give you like a concrete example yeah, for us? Yeah, absolutely, that'd be great. Um, so one of, 
part of my job is that I head up a domestic and family violence advocacy team. Yep. And that was built with a kind of a purpose to not just speak to the church but also speak to the broader society, I guess, from the perspective of the church or perspective of faith. Um, And there's lots of stuff that we could do in that realm. There's so much stuff in the media or things that happen. A woman is killed, you know, every week. Mm. Um, And so we could kind of speak in a condemning way about that. What does this say about us as a society that this Mm. is what we're doing? But what we realised when we were kind of forming this team and thinking about our campaigns and strategies was – we don't have any moral integrity to do that unless we've looked at ourselves first and we've really done the hard work of going, well, where is it in the church and do we know how it came to be in the church given that mm. everything in our belief system says that that should never happen? Yeah. Um, so what is it? How do we form the cultures um, in our own church systems that mm. might permit it or excuse it or just at least uh, allow us to not even know that it's there Mm. um and so for us that was the biggest task is to go okay let's look inside first and do the work within us to have integrity about domestic and family violence before we you know talk to the rest of the world about it I think that's kind of one example of what we need to do that um you know, the Bible actually tells us what business do you have to judge people outside yeah. you? Yeah. Um, actually, the people you should be looking at are yourselves. <laughs> um, take the plank out of your own eye first. Yeah. Um, so it's really just about going like, do we have integrity and how would we know? And are we willing to face it when we've made mistakes or mm. when we really need to own something? And I guess, you know, the church is not alone in that approach being needed at the moment yeah. in terms of integrity. Like yeah. At, you know, the banking commission and all of the issues that you know we have with the money markets and you know it's not too dissimilar really that aspect of integrity is something that a lot of organizations really need to look within and and wrestle with before they can kind of really go out and and do that kind of work so yeah that's it's really fascinating so we often hear the phrase actions speak louder than words But when it comes to community, should we be practicing more than preaching? Researchers in the fields of psychology and behavioral economics continue to observe that people regularly mimic the behavior of others and have concluded that imitation is key to binding social groups. In his book about leadership, Peter Northhouse says that authentic transformational leaders always act in ways that build trust. And a study by Kuznets and Posner in 2002 found that truly transformational leaders modelled the way for others. We heard Erica say that by acting with integrity and modelling behaviour, leaders can help to transform their organisations. Our final guest is Matt Debiewen, Health Education Team Manager at Uniting's Medically Supervised Injecting Centre. Matt is in charge of all things health education and promotion and oversees Uniting's wonderful Art from the Heart project. For nearly two decades, the centre has been caring for people who inject drugs, and Matt details some very important lessons about listening, trust, and respect in your community. So the the thing that um, brings us all together, it's the mission. And I Actually, I, I say this to clients quite a lot. Um, we're here for the same reason. Mm. 
and, and what I mean, so I, I, yeah. this is actually a thing I say to clients. Um, maybe sometimes if I'm having to pull them up on some of the rules or, or something, I say like, um, I'm here for the same reason you are so that you're safe. <laughs> like that, yeah. y- you come here to be safer. I come to work to provide that service. We're looking at a way uh, right now, actually, it's, it's quite exciting to um, have some of our clients be peer volunteers within the service. So um, they're like sort of active clients of the service, but we, we're putting in place now a really structured and safe and sort of um, appropriate way that those service users can put on a name badge that says volunteer. And that's a way that um, we're sort of tapping into the resources of the community. And that's really important, The recognizing that the community of people who use the service have so much knowledge and experience and skill around the topics that, that yeah, we're talking about. Absolutely. Around. And I would imagine there'd be lots of people here who are involved with the centre who would really welcome that opportunity. And you think there would be quite a lot of people who want to give something back to the centre that's helped them, but also to support other people that they can see need help too. Yeah. It, so it, the reason that we're, we're embarking on this journey of having what we're calling peer volunteers is because they were asking for it, uh, you know, like people were saying, how can I, can I come a volunteer here? Can I do something? I want to give back to my community. Uh, one amazing way that we, we actually empower our clients to contribute within their community is we, so there's this thing called naloxone or Narcan, and that is the uh, drug that reverses an overdose. It's a life-saving drug. It is like bread and butter for us. And um, for any any people listening from North America, they may have way more knowledge of it because the overdose epidemic is is just off off the scale of what we can comprehend in the Australian context. So naloxone is much more common and, and known about in North America in particular. But but we use it. Um, ambulance people use it. What we do as part of a initiative with New South Wales Health is we train our clients to administer it to other people and we actually provide them with a um, takeaway pack of that drug. So what we're doing is empowering the people we see here to go and help keep their community safe where people are injecting outside of our service. And I guess that extends the reach of the centre really giving those people a sense that they're also contributing to their own communities as well. Yep. Uh, so two days ago, a client um, heard that an overdose was happening in a nearby hotel and they had naloxone on them that we had given them and they went and administered that. And um, I talked with, the, with that person later and they said that the person who was overdosing lived. So they saved that person's life. We gave them the drug in which they could do that. Yeah. It, it's it's really, it's so real. The the importance of um, this this type of thing, it, it, and it is ultimately about extending the reach of what we're doing and empowering our clients to go and save their community members, you know, their friends, their their peers their members of their communities to save their life. Our clients will probably see way more overdoses than than we see. 
And um, so empowering them, upskilling them, training them to um, respond is a huge uh, responsibility and a, and a huge opportunity for us. I think um, where in any context where peers are involved or, or peer knowledge is utilized or, or you know, valued, that's such an um, acknowledgement of the strengths of whatever community that might be. In our case, we're talking about a community of people who inject drugs in King's Cross um, and recognising that um, that those those people within that community have uh, really important, valuable experiences, um, positive experiences, but also they might have um, developed... uh, No, in fact, I know for sure that so many of our clients have developed unbelievable levels of resilience and compassion and just just an amazing ability to um, keep going in the face of a lot of really traumatic hardship or abuse. Um, sort of uh, slightly different but linked with the volunteering project here is we have a uh, it's called the Consumer Action Group. So they're members. It's like a representat- representative group uh, made up of clients of our service who um, do a whole range of things uh, f- for the service. And they meet regularly and they'll look at any aspects of the centre. They come in and meet once a month, uh, usually, and they sort of consult on some of the things we're doing and they advise us, you know, literally like, how should we, this is a really small example, but like how should we format this document? And they advise us on that. And in fact, the concept that they wanted like peer volunteering roles here, that came from that group. You know, that was a really direct thing of they said, hey, Matt, can we please volunteer here? And I said, okay, I need to go work on that. (laughs) But (laughs) but it was from them. It was literally a conversation with, a really ongoing conversation with that group. Um, but then also we we might bring things to them uh, or we, we try to involve them in like um, research projects that we're doing and just say, hey, what what do you think about this? Is this is this fair? We try to involve them when we're um, maybe presenting at conferences or, or, you know, in some of the training that we do. Literally like they come with us or, or they're part of the presentation or, you know, they contribute to the content. All of it is underpinned by this this understanding that, their input is important. They're a really crucial stakeholder in the operation of all of this. And so we should listen to them. We have to listen to them. We might have the sort of, I guess, the bureaucratic or the the authority, the power, but part of that is to um, listen to other people and, and to, to um, not feel so, or rather to, to act with some humility in listening to the, community that is that uses the service Mm. that is affected most by the service having that group that is so active within the service is that one of the things that kind of makes this a community in a way yeah i think for the people that are in that group the the clients of our service who are in this representative group um i've talked with with 
I know all of them. I, like I've talked with them with them many, many times about this and about other things. And the the really just simple answer that they sort of give as to why they're in that group is because they want to give back to their community. They see their um, that they're able to do something positive for their community, for other people who are using the service. It, re- it really is that simple. It's like there's a opportunity for them to contribute and they they love doing that. Our role is to provide some of the structure to provide that opportunity, um, but then to sort of step back a bit and and let, you know, it, it's that that sort of really classic saying nothing about us without us. It really is that sort of simple. And that's why people would join that group because they want to contribute. Regardless of your education or expertise, there really is no substitute for lived experience. Not only are community members best placed to identify their own needs and priorities, but they have really valuable skills and experiences which are critical in developing creative solutions. This notion of nothing about us without us that Matt mentioned speaks to one of the core values of community development theory, bottom-up development. This approach is grounded in the idea that people who are affected by decisions should be empowered to influence those decisions. A crucial component of bottom-up development is listening. Matt has helped to develop the Peer Volunteer Programme, which exemplifies what we can create when we listen to members of our community. And a Swedish study of successful innovation in companies found that creativity and innovation were largely generated from the bottom up. So really listening to people on the ground benefits the whole community and leads to more sustainable solutions. Thanks so much for listening to our leadership extracts from the Missing Peace podcast, where we interview the likely and not so likely experts about how they build their communities. Head over to iTunes or Spotify for more episodes. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn at Rachel Abel. I love to connect with new people, so please do get in touch. Stay safe, be well and thanks so much for listening.